0: Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 7 through 18 in just a moment. In the passage that we uh, we read earlier, Paul, he had been describing his distress over the Corinthians. He was very worried about how they were responding to Uh, to him and to his ministry and so he had sent Titus to learn what was going on there and yet he had not heard back from Titus. And so he he takes off on a desperate hunt, hunt for his, his brother Titus so that he can learn about the believers at Corinth. But before we as readers of this letter, before we learn whether he found Titus or not, Paul embarks on kind of a a digression, a very lengthy digression, in which he describes the nature of genuine gospel ministry. And he begins uh, there at the end of chapter 2 and going on into chapter 3 with two images. He says, God has commissioned us. And he has equipped us as ministers of his new covenant gospel. And he gives us two images that describe his his work as a minister of the gospel. In the first image, he says, I'm a, a prisoner of war. I've been captured by Christ. And Christ is parading me and my fellow gospel ministers, parading us through the streets in his victory parade. Then secondly, in chapter 3, he uses another image of himself as a minister of the good news. He says, I'm a a letter courier. I'm a mailman. Christ has written a letter, and you Corinthian believers, you are Christ's letter. But he didn't write it with ink and on paper, as we would normally write a letter. Instead, he wrote it with the Holy Spirit and on your very heart, because we are are participants in a new covenant. That language of writing, God writing on the hearts of humans, is drawn directly from uh, Jeremiah, where Jeremiah prophesied that in the future, God is going to make a new, a better covenant with his people. And He's not going. it's going to be better because instead of receiving the law in tablets of stone, God is actually going to write it in their hearts. And Paul is saying, we are ministers in this new covenant situation that's better than the old covenant. And we are delivering this letter. You are the letter. Christ wrote it, and we've delivered it here as you have received the gospel. So a second image. And this second image leads Paul into the comparison that we read earlier. A comparison between the new covenant... And the Old Covenant. And he concludes that the New Covenant is far more glorious. The Old Covenant brought death, condemnation. It was temporary. The New Covenant, it's administered by the Spirit of God Himself. It brings righteousness and it lasts forever. It's far more glorious. And Paul says we have the privilege of ministering in this covenant therefore he says we are bold proclaimers of christ we have nothing to hide that's one of the consequences of ministering in such a glorious covenant it's boldness i have nothing to hide so he goes into chapter four in those first six verses that we read and he talks about his methods of ministry he's bold He is not as certain preachers in Paul's day were. He's not adopting some of the methods that they were adopting. But rather, Paul says, we've renounced them. We don't need those methods in this new covenant ministry. He he calls those methods disgraceful, underhanded ways. They're cunning. They're tampering with God's word. And evidently they were adopting these kinds of methods in their gospel ministry, these other preachers, they were adopting it because it appears that there were a good many people who weren't responding to Paul's gospel message. They didn't didn't grasp it. It was strange. They couldn't see what was so wonderful about this Christ. They were blind. And so... This kind of response was leading certain preachers to adopt these underhanded ways. Peddling the gospel. Pulling the, bait, the old bait and switch. But Paul says in those first six verses of chapter 4 here, that limited results in our gospel ministry does not necessarily mean that a person is not qualified as a gospel minister. The fact that people don't respond does not necessarily disqualify the messenger. And that brings us to our text, beginning in verse 7. In the rest of this chapter and and even beyond, Paul is going to deal with a second objection to his ministry. The first was, look, people people aren't getting it. They don't understand. Your gospel is veiled. It's esoteric, perhaps. People don't get it. That's the first objection. And now he's going to deal with a second objection, beginning in verse 7. And that is, Paul, your sufferings and your weakness prove that you're not really qualified to be a minister in this new covenant. So let's read verses 7 through 18 together. In these verses, Paul is answering this implied objection about his weakness and his suffering. And he makes four assertions that I want us to look at this morning. Four assertions, four statements about suffering and weakness in the life of a gospel minister. Paul is an apostle of the new covenant, but it extends also to all of us who participate in this same New Covenant and are therefore servants of this New Covenant. We are therefore ministers. It extends to all of us who are disciples of Christ and are therefore called to make disciples, whether at home or abroad. And so these statements on the suffering of a gospel minister are highly applicable to each of us as Christians. The first statement that Paul makes about his suffering comes in verse 7 right away. But before we we articulate that statement, let's look at the image that Paul uses to refer to himself. He refers to himself as a clay jar. We have this treasure in jars of clay. This is uh, an image that highlights weakness, fragility. It highlights lowliness. It highlights expendability, a clay jar. It's like the the Dixie cup. If it breaks, no big deal. We've got a hundred more. They come in packs of a hundred, right? And that's the idea. It's just a clay jar. It's cheap. And this is one of several images that Paul uses in in the, the verses we've read today to refer to his own weakness. He began by referring to himself as a prisoner of war, being paraded through the streets, Here, it's a clay jar. In chapter 5, he's going to refer to himself as a tent that is subject to, to destruction. So all these images highlighting his weakness. And he says that God has placed the treasure, and the treasure here would be this glorious New Covenant gospel, God has placed this treasure in a container like this, in a clay jar. And that runs counter to our expectations. It runs counter to our normal mode of operation. You would expect to place something so valuable, so glorious. Paul has gone on and on about how glorious this gospel is. So we would expect that God would have placed it not in a container so weak and fragile. We want to protect our treasures, do we not? We want to preserve them so we we search out something strong and sturdy in which to place our treasures. But what Paul begins to show us here, and he's going to continue throughout this chapter, is that God is working differently. And notice that it is is God. It, It is by design that the treasure is placed in a weak container. You see there uh, a a purpose that's stated there. We have this treasure in jars of clay to, the idea is in order to show. God has a purpose in placing the treasure in such a weak vessel. It is to show how glorious his power is. And later throughout the passage, Paul will, will again highlight God's design. This is not a mere accident that the glorious treasure is in a weak container. It is a design of God. You see that here in verse 7. Down in verse 10 and 11, you see it again where Paul says, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that... In other words, there's a purpose in carrying the death of Jesus in our body. Verse 11 has the same, same, same wording. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that. So there's a purpose in the weakness. There's a purpose in the suffering and in the dying. It's a divine purpose. Verse 11, Paul says we're being delivered over to death. Who is delivering Paul over to death? This is the same word that's used of Jesus being delivered over. On the one hand, it was Judas. Same word is used for Judas delivering, handing Jesus over to the authorities. But Paul in Romans uses this very same word to refer to God who delivered over his only son. And the context here is very clear Paul views God as putting the treasure in a clay jar, in weakness. Paul views God as delivering them over to death for a purpose. So the first statement here in verse 7 that Paul wants to make about his suffering is, it is by design. It is by design. It's not accidental. It's not incidental to his ministry as a gospel gospel servant. It is by God's design. The minister's weakness highlights God's saving and preserving power. Now, if we were to stop right at verse 7, we might think that God's method here of putting the treasure in a weak vessel. His method of doing this renders that container, that vessel immune to the hardships that would otherwise face it. The common experience of a vessel like this, a cheap vessel, the Dixie Cup, it gets abused and no one's worried about it. But It has this treasure in it, so maybe that means it no longer has to suffer and be abused that way. But that's not what Paul tells us. Verses 8 through 12 tell us otherwise. And lead us into Paul's second statement about the minister's sufferings. In verses 8 and 9 that we just read... We find this litany of hardships or a catalog of Paul's sufferings. We find that multiple places in this epistle. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. So we have four pairs in these two verses. On the one hand, we have a hardship. And these four hardships correspond to that weak clay jar. But on the other hand, in these four pairs, we we have a surprising outcome in each one. And these surprising outcomes correspond to the treasure, the glorious treasure of the gospel. Look at the outcomes Normally, if you're afflicted, you might be crushed. If you're perplexed like Paul, you would be driven to despair. If you're persecuted, it means you've been abandoned, forsaken. To be struck down as Paul was typically leads to being destroyed. But here, in these verses, Paul makes his second statement about the gospel servant's suffering. And that is... The suffering does not destroy the minister of the gospel. The suffering, the affliction, the the perplexing circumstances, the persecution, the being struck down does not destroy the minister of the gospel. Why? Explain yourself, Paul, how? How can you... Endure such suffering and yet not be destroyed. In verses 10 and 11, Paul gives us the answer. It's a theological explanation of just how a weak and abused vessel like Paul, like us, can sustain such ill treatment. Look at verses 10 and 11. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, the affliction that surprisingly doesn't lead to crushing and the perplexing circumstances that surprisingly do not drive Paul to despair. The, the, thirdly, the persecution that surprisingly does not leave Paul forsaken. And the beating, the being struck down that surprisingly does not leave Paul destroyed. All of these sufferings are a participation In the dying of Christ. Notice that Paul doesn't merely say that that he experiences the sufferings of Christ. He actually says the very dying of Christ. I am experiencing that dying in my sufferings. They are the outworkings of Christ's death in Paul. So when we read affliction and perplexing circumstances and persecutions and beatings, we should think the experience of Christ's dying in this gospel minister. How does this happen? It, is, it happens because Paul viewed himself as one with Christ. When Paul believed, he was united to Christ. And he teaches that all of us are just as united to Christ when we first believe. By virtue of his union with Christ, Paul was experiencing Christ's death in his daily sufferings. But it is a death that goes contrary to our natural expectations because verses 10 and 11 show that it leads where? This death leads to resurrection life. Look at the second half of verse 10. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The second half of verse 11. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. For if union with Christ means that Paul experiences Christ dying, it just as certainly means That he experiences Christ's rising to new life. This is exactly what Paul expounds in great detail in Romans 6. If we died with Christ, we also shall live with Christ. Why? Because we've been baptized into him. Whatever happens to Christ happens to us. Christ died, therefore I die. Christ rose, therefore I live. At Pentecost, Peter, in his preaching, said that it was impossible for death to hold Christ, Acts chapter 2. And likewise, Paul says it is impossible that those who experience the death of Christ should not also experience his resurrection. That's how Paul can sustain this. That's how he can endure such suffering and not be destroyed. Now, when is this kind of resurrection power manifested in Paul? When does Paul experience this resurrection life? We we might be tempted if we think about some other of Paul's writings, like Romans 8 and Philippians 3, where Paul talks about rising from the dead. We might be tempted to think he's thinking of the future resurrection of the believer, and that's certainly a reality that we're looking forward to. But here in this text, the context and, and even the the language itself suggests that Paul is referring to a present experience of the resurrection power of Christ in Paul's experiences, a present experience of Christ dying, a present. A uh, uh, present experience of his resurrection life. God is presently revealing His power through human weakness. Notice the language of revelation here, in order so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Verse 11 may be manifested. God is revealing resurrection power currently. Right now, he's not simply waiting to the end. But right now, in the suffering of his gospel servant, God is manifesting the power. He's revealing, he's speaking of the power of Christ's resurrection. Now, it's true that many people who observe Paul, many people who observe the gospel servant in their suffering they don't see resurrection power. They don't have the eyes to see it. They see Paul and all of his weakness and they think he is down and out for the count. They see us as gospel servants and they think there's nothing significant. There's no miraculous resurrection power going on there. But God is nonetheless objectively speaking through the sufferings of his gospel servants. And the resurrection power is there, according to what Paul is telling us. And for those who have eyes to see it, those whose eyes have been unveiled, when they see Paul's sufferings, they do see resurrection power that's preserving him through those sufferings. So God is working in Paul by the very same pattern that he used when he worked through his Son to save the world. The cross of Christ, the ultimate display of weakness, the crucifixion, became God's power to save. The ultimate folly, the ultimate blunder... The ultimate botched plan, it would appear, became God's wisdom. So, power through weakness, wisdom through folly, and life through death. This is God's way that He worked at the very center point of history in the death and resurrection of Christ. And now... God continues to communicate this way. He continues to reveal His power in the same way, the saving power of the death and resurrection of His Son. He continues to display it, how? By replaying it in the life of Paul and in the life of gospel servants. God is replaying that central event in the lives of his messengers. Paul's experiences are a rerun. We get to watch it again in the life of Paul. We get to watch the dying of Christ and the resurrection of Christ when we watch Paul. And when we watch the lives of other gospel ministers as they suffer and persevere with the life of Christ in them, we are watching a replay of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And because God has united the messenger to the Savior, those those reruns actually communicate the saving life that Christ's experiences communicate. Look at verse 12. Paul ends this little paragraph saying, So death is at work in us. That is, the death of Christ is at work in us, but life, that is the resurrection life of Christ in you. This is one of of several places where Paul talks almost as if he attributes saving power to his own personal experiences, his own sufferings. Think of other places where Paul is not afraid to, to speak of saving people, that I might save some people. Sometimes we're afraid to talk like that, but if we understand what Paul is, is saying, he is not, not speaking in absolute terms. He's speaking in intermediate terms. So, so Christ, by His unique suffering, His unique death, His unique resurrection, Christ accomplished salvation for all, once for all, Absolutely. And God now communicates this saving power intermediately. That is, through the messengers as they suffer, die, and rise again in their union with Christ. Maybe an analogy from the Bible would help us here. By analogy, we see God has spoken once and for all, absolutely, infallibly Through his living word, the word became flesh. This is the word of God, the second person of the Godhead. And this word infallibly communicates the very essence of God. Listen to that word and you have heard God speak. This word communicates eternal life to everyone who hears it, who hears him. But God has also commissioned His people to proclaim the Word, to convey the Word intermediately. And everyone who listens to this Word from God's messengers receives eternal life. So, Paul is replaying the death of Christ, the life of Christ, in his own experiences. And this is why, uh, turn over to Colossians, please. Let's look at Colossians, another description of Paul's suffering and their effect. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1.24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The, this experiences of, of the dying of Christ. I rejoice in it for your sake. And in my flesh, that is in my, in my body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is, I am bringing here. The thing that's lacking here is the, the physical presence of Christ on the cross. But if you want to know what it's like, you can get a real Genuine taste of that by watching the life of Paul. He's bringing it in front of them. He would say to, he would write to the church in Galatia that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes. How was he publicly portrayed as crucified? Because Paul lived with them for a time, they got to watch him suffer and watch him persevere with resurrection life. So Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, his church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Jump down to verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And that is what's happening back in 2 Corinthians 4 in our text. Look again at that summary statement in verse 12. So death, what death? The death of Christ is at work in us as gospel ministers. But life, what life? The life of Christ's resurrection is also at work in us and therefore in you. You are the beneficiary of this dying and rising. So, in these verses, verses 8 through 12, God saves man only through Christ and He also ordains that man receive this salvation through the preached Word, through faith in the preaching of the Gospel. And the messengers, the preachers' suffering is integral to that preached message. It's a design feature the, the, the messenger suffering. So, the second statement Paul makes about suffering as a gospel minister, he says, the suffering of God's servants does not destroy them. And again, why? How? How is it that the kind of afflictions that Paul endured do not utterly undo him. And the answer is now gloriously clear after verses 10 and 11. It's because of the gospel that unites the messenger to Christ. The messenger is united to Christ and therefore the messenger is just as resilient in the face of sufferings as is Christ. This is power to persevere. So if we go back to the the original image that we started our time with this morning, verse 7. The original image in this passage. A treasure placed inside a weak vessel. We would expect, normally, the way we work, is that the container serves to protect the treasure So if it's really valuable, you want a really sturdy, a really safe container. But Paul is showing us that it actually works the other way around. The power of God's glorious gospel actually preserves the weak vessel that holds it. We don't protect and preserve the gospel so much as the gospel in us as Dixie Cups, as jars of clay, is preserving us if the clay jar did not, contain the, uh, did not contain this powerful gospel, it would have been utterly destroyed by all the hardship, the abuse, and neglect. So thus far, Paul has said that the gospel minister's sufferings are by God's design. Secondly, those sufferings do not destroy, will not destroy the gospel servant. And thirdly, In verses 13 through 15, he says that they do not silence the gospel servant. All of these sufferings do not silence Paul. In the early verses of this chapter, we already saw that some had rejected Paul's message. They didn't understand it. Their minds were veiled, their eyes were veiled, and so they had rejected it. And Paul said, I'm still going to preach, and I'm not changing my methods. I'm still going to preach boldly, verses 1 through 6. But if the enemy didn't succeed in in creating confusion and blindness, that's what happens in verses 1 through 6. The tactic there was blindness. The God of this world has done what? Blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That was tactic number one, and it didn't work against Paul. He kept proclaiming Christ, proclaiming Christ. But now, in these verses, 7 through 18, it's as if the enemy says, I have another tactic. And that is, I'm going to afflict the messenger. I'm going to make him suffer. That will shut him up. I'm going to take some of these unbelievers who don't understand what Paul is talking about, and I'm going to, to, to rouse them up to attack Paul with persecution. And that will certainly stop. Paul. But in these verses, Paul says, no, I will keep preaching. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, and he quotes from the psalmist, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also spoke. The psalmist had faith and that led him to speak. Paul says, we're just like the psalmist. We have faith. And so we're going to speak, even though we're suffering. Now, what was Paul's faith here? Specific. Can we be more specific? What was the content of his faith in this verse? Is it just faith generally, or or can we be more specific? We certainly can. Verse 14 shows it's the very gospel truth that he's just been elaborating in previous verses. Look at verse 14. Here's the content of his faith. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's what Paul believes. And because he believes that, even persecution, even the threat of physical death will not silence him from proclaiming Christ. Earlier in verses 10 and 11, I said that I think Paul is talking about a present resurrection life. Right now, in my sufferings, Paul says, I am experiencing the resurrection life of Christ right now. Here, Paul seems to be thinking of the future bodily resurrection that he and all of us are going to experience. In other words, even death itself. Even the fear of death will not silence Paul because he knows he's going to rise again. And again, that's because of his union with Christ. He experiences that union in present resurrection life and he's going to experience it in future resurrection life. So the threat of death carries no real weight with Paul. So, this is the third statement about the minister's sufferings. They do not silence him from speaking the gospel. Now we come to the fourth, final statement that Paul makes here, verses 16 through 18. This is a a statement that um, is the hardest one for me to wrap my mind and my heart around. Currently, I'm wrestling with imitating Paul We've already seen in verse 1 that Paul was not discouraged by unbelieving responses to his message. He kept on pro- proclaiming. And now he says, I'm not discouraged by my sufferings. That's his fourth, fourth statement. The, gospel, the sufferings of the gospel minister do not dishearten him. Do not discourage him. And this is amazing because Paul is not here taking some stoic philosophical stance in the face of suffering, saying, I don't, I don't feel it, or, or somewhat akin to a Buddhist stance that suffering, we are passive in the face of all suffering. No, if you read 2 Corinthians... Paul goes on at length about the the pain, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that he sustained. I mean, this was real to Paul. So he's not saying, your pain's not real, my pain's not real. Nevertheless, he says, it does not dishearten me. Verse 16, he says, so... That word so points back to everything that we've uh, we've looked at already. So, because of the treasure of the gospel that assures us of our union with Christ in His death and in His rising, that guarantees both our present and future experience of the resurrection. That's what the word so means. There, it's all packed into the, those two little letters. So because of all this glorious gospel, we do not lose heart. That is how we can continue unabashed in the face of such suffering. So we do not lose heart. But there's actually more that Paul's going to add. He points back and says, all that is how we don't lose heart. And then there's something else I need to tell you. And this also is why we don't lose heart in the face of such affliction. And it's why you and I must not lose heart in the face of our own sufferings. The second half of verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He speaks here of A present renewal. A present renewal that occurs in the midst of his present deterioration. This is very similar to what we saw back in verses 10 and 11. We're dying. We're experiencing the dying of Christ right now. And we are also simultaneously experiencing the resurrection life of Christ. So we're experiencing this Uh, Wearing away, wasting away. But simultaneously, because of our union with Christ, we are living. We are experiencing his life as well. But then, in verse 17, Paul again looks to the future. Do you see him going back and forth between present and future? Present experience of my union with Christ and future consummation of my union with Christ. So in verse 17, he's going to look again to the future. And as he does so, in verse 17, we see the same two two realities that we've seen all throughout these chapters. Suffering and glory. Death and resurrection life. But here in verse 17, Paul adds something new. And it is powerful. It is helpful for us as we endure suffering as members of Christ's new covenant. What does he add? Look at verse 17. For this light momentary affliction. We could, we could stop there and talk. Paul calls all of that light and momentary. But we'll keep going. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering and glory, death and resurrection, according to this verse, are not merely sequential. It's not merely step one, suffer, step two, glory. Step one, die. Step two, rise. It's not merely incidental contact between these two, two entities. There's a much tighter relationship between the suffering and the glory. It wasn't so clear in Paul's earlier writing, but right now he makes it very clear by that word preparing. Verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The former, the suffering is productive of the latter, the glory. The suffering produces glory in and for us in our future. This is actually in keeping with how Paul writes about suffering in Romans, chapter 5, chapter 8. He pictures suffering at the head of a chain, it's the first link in a chain, an unbreakable chain that leads ultimately to the glory of God and the glorification of the believer. It's more than a mere sequence. There's actually some causation going on between the suffering and the glory. The suffering is producing glory. I think all of us have been in situations from time to time where a, a difficult circumstance, a, a difficult situation, and either through quick thinking maybe or resourcefulness, maybe a little bit of luck, we are able somehow to salvage something good out of a bad situation. And we're glad for that, right? But in those situations, if it were up to you, if it were up to me, we would, we would forego the bad situation to begin with, <laughs> It would have been even better if none of this would have happened in the first place. But this is not how Paul views suffering in God's plans for his servants. Suffering is not merely an unfortunate circumstance that God in his wisdom and power is able to work around and still make something good happen. Instead, suffering in the life of God's servants is a design feature like we saw in the clay jar. We have this treasure in a clay jar to show. God wants to do something. He wants to show something. And here in verse 17, he wants to produce something. And he's going to produce it with suffering. It's indispensable part of God's plan, both for us as the servants and for the people who are watching the suffering, who are watching the reruns, of Christ in us. It's not even a matter of labor and reward. If you suffer, then you'll get a reward. That's true, and Paul talks like that in other places. But here, there's a much more intimate, a much more organic connection between the suffering and the glory. The suffering, in a sense, grows the glory for us that we experience later. It's like the athlete... He doesn't achieve glory in spite of his suffering in the gymnasium, but by means of it. And so we achieve glory. We attain to the resurrection of the dead, as Paul says in Philippians 3, through the sufferings of death, the sufferings, the dying of Christ. There is no other way, according to Paul. A living person cannot experience resurrection. If you want to experience resurrection, you've got to be dead first. You've got to suffer. You have to experience the dyings of Christ." So Paul concludes this chapter, this section in verse 18. He says, "As we look, not to the things that are seen we'll think, let's think about what that it means but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul has told us that his suffering doesn't dishearten him in verse 16 because he is presently experiencing the renewal of resurrection life. In verse 17 he says, The suffering doesn't dishearten me, because I am certain of a future consummation where my body, my entire being will rise to eternal life. Therefore, I'm not disheartened. Now, in verse 18, he's exhorting us as fellow gospel servants. He's exhorting us to look, to set our attention, not on the sufferings that present themselves to us at every turn. That's the things that are seen in this context. Paul says, I'm not looking at the things that are seen. Well, what's he talking about? Well, same thing he's been rehearsing all chapter long, his sufferings. That is not what I'm looking at. Instead, I'm looking at things that are unseen. And in context, the resurrection life of Christ, present and future experience of that. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What is seen is suffering. What is unseen is glory. Look to things that you can't look at. See things that you can't see. You need a second sight, Paul says. And where do you get the second sight? You get it by looking at Christ. When the veil is taken away, when a man turns to Christ. So when people looked at Paul... If they didn't have this second sight, if that veil was not lifted, they saw a clay jar. Weak, inferior, dispensable, abused. But if they had the second sight, they saw glory. Chapter 5, Paul is going to say, "...from now on we view no one according to the flesh." That is, we don't look at people in a human way anymore. We used to look at people that way, but not anymore. We used to look at Christ that way, he says, but not anymore. We've got the second sight. That reminds me of Isaiah 53. You remember the suffering servant of the Lord? Strong connection to this passage. The suffering servant of the Lord. How does Isaiah say Israel beheld him? We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, and we hid our face. We wanted nothing to do with this guy. But now we don't look at Christ that way anymore. When we see that suffering, we see glory. And Paul says this is how we look at one another. All people we look at this way. When you see a brother or sister in Christ experiencing suffering, physical suffering, when you, when you see them with a child with meningitis, with other serious health issues, health issues in their own, in their own body, Spiritual strugglings, financial issues, family conflict, wayward son, wayward daughter, these sufferings. Before we were in Christ, before we had this second sight, we looked at that and just, wow. Maybe we said, why, God? Where are you? But now we look at those sufferings in the life of a Christian, the life of a gospel messenger. And we see glory. What is God doing? What kind of glory is he preparing for that person? Wow! It's going to last forever. It's going to be so weighty that they can't stand up underneath it. That's the image. That suffering is preparing an eternal weight of glory for that person. And so Paul says, I'm not disheartened. I'm looking ahead to that kind of glory. That's what I'm seeing in all of the suffering. So I'm not disheartened. So, far from disqualifying the gospel minister from service, far from suggesting that uh, his defeat, that he's defeated, or that God is displeased with him, no, the sufferings in the life of the Christian are by design by God. They will not destroy us because of our union with Christ. Quite the contrary. They must not silence us as messengers. And then lastly, they should not dishearten us. May God give us grace to imitate Paul and to see as he saw. Let's ask him to do this. Thank you, God, for Paul, for choosing him and sending him. Thank you for this letter. Teach us to see what Paul saw and teach us to suffer as he did, as our Lord did. In Christ's name, amen.